Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is so great to be hanging out with you today. Today we're having a conversation with Heidi Harmon. Heidi Harmon is the Senior Public Affairs Director at Let's Green California, a nonprofit that is building and creating climate policy in the state of California. Heidi Harmon is also the former mayor of San Luis Obispo, California. She served as mayor from 2016 to 2021. Heidi is truly an educator, an activist, and one of the most thoughtful politicians that I have had the pleasure of hearing from. We talk a lot today, of course, about climate policy, something that Heidi is not only passionate about, but so deeply educated in and really seeing to fruition at both the local and state level. And Heidi also has this really wonderful air around her of being a role model. And I don't say that lightly. I feel like she is such an educated woman on all of the topics we speak about today, but also just very thoughtful about people, about place, about community. And she is so well-versed in everything she mentions. She has a reference for every claim that she makes. She has the stats and the data ready to go. I work in the climate space, and I feel like I have not come across very many people who have the air and the authority around them that Heidi has in the way that she speaks so eloquently, so thoughtfully, and again, so well-backed. It was such, such a treat to have this conversation with her. And I know that you will learn a lot from it as well. We talk about communities of care and electric vehicles and what that means, again, at the consumer level, the local level, the state level. We talk about climate policy and ultimately talk about a climate policy that was just passed during midterm season. And there are so many other wonderful kind of life lessons that Heidi shares that I am, again, so happy to be able to share with you today. I will have Heidi's links in the show notes and also links to Let's Green California if you want to learn more about any of the policies we talk about today or any of the work that we reference. And, you know, down in the show notes, I always also have lots of links. I will have all of my social links at EcoChic Podcast on Instagram, my TikTok, my email if you ever want to get in touch. Because I hope you listen to this episode and are just crazy compelled to post it on your Instagram story, to share it with a friend, to post it in the family group chat, share this episode with someone that you know will value it. On that note, thanks so much for being here, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Heidi Harmon. I'd love to start our conversation today just setting the scene a little bit about your involvement in local politics. Tell me a little bit about that moment where you decided I'm ready to get involved locally? I was a single parent. I was homeschooling my kids. I was a maid. I was cleaning houses and an artist, I would say. So I had a college degree, but there was nothing necessarily in my background that would have indicated, oh, this is a person that's going to run for office one day at all. But it was the climate crisis that really called me to action. This is probably at least 20 years ago now that I first started to hear about global warming. And I had young kids then and could see that their lives were going to be impacted and potentially shortened. And so I just started to do what I could without really having any idea what I was doing, which I think is really important. I think a lot of times women in particular feel like we have to wait till we're somehow perfected. Like we have every degree in the world and we have every qualification we can imagine before we try and make a difference. And I just want to encourage people, especially anyone that identifies in a marginalized group, that you can make a difference actually absolutely right now as you are. And so I started more as an activist. So I did uh, marches, awareness events, protests, 
I wanted to get more involved. And so I also did things like I went out to Texas to join an eco-anarchist encampment of activists that were fighting the Keystone XL pipeline construction. Uh, that wasn't the right fit for me. I came home pretty soon after I went out there um, and was really asking myself, what can I do as one person to make a difference? And that is what led me to run for office the first time. When my local assembly member was running unopposed, I thought, why not me? And even though I knew in that case I couldn't win in the traditional sense, I did feel like it was a good opportunity for this issue to get into the paper, to get into people's minds and hearts, hopefully, and to start a bigger conversation about climate change. And that's exactly what happened. I ran against an incumbent that was a gas station owning, fossil fuel money taking guy. By the end of our campaign, he was posing in front of giant solar fields talking about renewable energy. And so even though I did technically lose that race, I really felt like the issue itself really won. That was in 2014. And then in 2016, I ran for mayor of my city, the city of San Luis Obispo, against another incumbent and won by 46 votes. So every vote counts. Um, we're seeing a lot of close races currently in our current election cycle, too. And after I became mayor, we did a lot on climate, including having the most ambitious carbon neutrality goal of any city in the United States, amongst many other uh, leadership policies um, in my five years as mayor. Thank you so much for that quick and thorough breakdown of your past 20 or so years, like you said, of getting involved in the climate issue. Yeah. And I had heard about this incumbent that you ran against in 2014, who ultimately was posing in front of solar fields. And I don't know where I read that, but I remember thinking what a nice story that was from your perspective and how you handled that with such grace, because you even said it now, the challenge is not necessarily getting voted into office, but getting people aware of this issue and this platform that you're running on. So I have to say, I applaud you. And I think it's really admirable. And I also feel like that's a great lesson, especially as we're coming out of the midterm election season, as we're waiting on votes to be counted. When we talk about candidates running on climate platforms, it is really an issue of seeing where the money is, seeing what they're really willing to commit to, looking at someone's background. Like you said, there's a gas station owner who's running on a platform that eventually will become, you know, like a solar, a pro solar platform, whatever it may be. So it's really interesting to just remember as a voter that these candidates ultimately have backstories and there's details that you need to be paying attention to when you are voting for climate or for whatever other issue it may be. And something I'd love to talk to you a little bit about as well is your time as mayor. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about why your goals were so ambitious with the climate, because it seems like there's more than passion there. There has to be another issue there. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about what those plans were for your really aggressive carbon neutrality goals, what your office had to look like. How did you make it happen? My work is very much inspired by my maternal relationship to my two children who are now grown adults. You know, I feel like I made a commitment to them in my case, long before they were even born to do the best job I could. So I, I, I tempted to do that. And then when you have an issue like the climate crisis come into the world, you feel like, oh, okay, I see now, like my job will never be done here. If my commitment to my children was to create at the very least safety for them, a safe place to live where they can thrive. So that is such a grounding inspiration and commitment that I have that 
there's nothing else that matters more to me than being able to, at the very least, have my children look me in the eye and know that I did all I can, no matter what the outcome ends up being. And so I think that really gives me a lot of personal inspiration. And I'm a big believer in the idea that people will do big things for big goals, but they won't do small things for small ideas. They just won't. And it makes perfect sense, right? And so while I think a lot of folks in general, and certainly electeds in particular, have a tendency to play it small, that's just not my style. That's not what interests me about other people in office. And that's not who I wanted to be or who I am. And with so much at stake, there's really nothing left to lose. Like it, it, it is kind of literally a big, go big or go home kind of moment. We're faced with the potential penultimate moment of human existence here, right? So we have to go big, honestly. And so over my years as an activist in my community, with partnering with many other folks in my community over the years, we grew a bigger, a big progressive climate movement here. And so when I became mayor, I had a lot of community support behind me to pursue some really cutting edge policies. So that was a big key, I think, to my success as well. And also, as I said, you know, I think people get excited about someone with a big vision. It's something that they can get motivated about and, and hopefully trust and get excited about. And I think the community just really galvanized that around this vision for not just around climate issues, but about creating a community of care more broadly. I also, for example, created a, a sanctuary city here, you know, so I was elected just to remind folks when you're elected in 2016, you're elected on the same day as Donald Trump the culture, the the language, the tone, the threats around a lot of the issues that I care about and a lot of the groups that I care about were very real. And so in addition to prioritizing the future in terms of a healthy planet, I also did my best to make sure that folks that lived in my community knew they were safe in other ways. So we didn't use our local police force to pursue people based on their documentation status. We also stopped celebrating Columbus Day and instead celebrated the local tribes here, the Northern Chumash people in my case, and celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day instead, and many other policies around affordable housing, safe bike routes, and other things that to me are all interconnected in terms of creating communities of care. I've always aspired to be an elected that cares more about the next generation than they do about their next election. And I think that really resonated with my community and we were able to accomplish a lot in my time as mayor. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really like the language around communities of care. I've been thinking a lot about social sustainability and local government and communities that really come together again, especially around midterm season and around elections. It really shows what does it mean for people to be truly involved in a place or to feel truly tied to the success of a community? So I appreciate you sharing all of those different facets that you can understand communities of care through. I'd love to talk to you a little bit on the policy side, perhaps, of your time as mayor. Was there a particular policy that you felt was the shining star of your time as mayor? Was there something that you were so incredibly proud of mm. that your community really got behind and was really proud to support you in? It feels like a, a weaving, right? Because there's so many policies that interweave that are necessary to create this future that I think we're all fighting for. Do you believe in 
quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsor today, Bite. Did you know you swallow five to 7% of toothpaste every single time you brush your teeth? That to me is absolutely nuts. That's an entire blob of toothpaste every seven days. And most commercial toothpastes are filled with harsh chemicals, artificial flavors, preservatives, not necessarily stuff that you want to be eating. Bite makes dry toothpaste tablets with clean ingredients that are sulfate-free, palm oil-free, and glycerin-free. Another thing I love about Bite toothpaste is that they are so convenient. You just pop a bit into your mouth, you chew it up, you start brushing, it'll turn into paste, it'll foam a little bit, just like you're used to, but there's no plastic tube and there's no messiness all over your face. I used to be one of those girls. I am a grown woman with toothpaste all over my face when I'm using a conventional toothpaste. Switching over to Bite for a lot of my personal care products was kind of a no-brainer, again, because it can go plastic-free and it's easy to travel with and it just makes me feel better about what I am putting in and on my body. I mentioned there's no plastic tube to deal with and that's because Bite toothpaste bits come in refillable glass jars and they send refills in compostable pouches. So they're better for our earth and they're better for the planet. Again, no more plastic toothpaste tubes and no gross stuff in our toothpaste that we are inevitably eating all the time. Bite makes plastic-free alternatives to everything on your bathroom sink from toothpaste to mouthwash to toothbrushes and deodorant. You can cut out all of the harsh chemicals and all the plastic waste without compromise. Bite is offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to trybite.com slash ecochic or use code ecochic at checkout to claim this deal. That's T-R-Y-B-I-T-E dot com slash ecochic. So I'll just briefly say affordable housing and housing in general is critical to solving the climate crisis, getting people living closer to where they work, for example, and reducing those miles traveled creating safe routes for people to get out of cars altogether and use other modes of transportation, walking and bikes. So that was also critical. But I would say moving towards a community choice energy system is considered to be kind of the the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, in terms of reducing emissions. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with community choice energy or if you have that locally. Um, But basically, it's taking the investor-owned utility out of the procurement, I cannot say that word right, of energy piece. They still are in the transmission position, but instead replacing that with hopefully all clean renewable energy, the same bill, you get the same system. And the additional benefit of that is that instead of the profits going to the investors and the shareholders and the investor-owned utility model, Those profits now in part go back to the community. So there's a lot more fiscal support for things like local community members to get access to EV charging in their own home, uh, EVs in general, heat pumps, and all kind of other ways of electrifying the built environment and your transportation um, is subsidized to some extent from the money that normally would go to shareholders in that investor-owned utility model. So if folks want to learn more about that, I'm sure there's a lot of resources and maybe you can put a link. And I would just say, lastly, the most controversial policy in terms of climate specific policy, we were the second city in the state of California and maybe the second city ever. I'm not sure about that to move to a policy of removing toxic methane gas, often called natural gas from the built environment and all new buildings. We have a Southern California gas here in the middle of California. And long story short, 
the gas workers union threatened our city, uh, threatened to, this was in the middle of COVID, threatened to bus load in bus loads of COVID positive people if we went forward with the vote. Threatened me personally, threatened our whole town, uh, threatened to parade through the town through COVID with COVID positive folks. So that was a very intense process. There was a lot of intentional disinformation that was used on the part of the gas company and their unions at that time. Um, but we eventually moved forward with that policy nevertheless. And so in terms of fighting the fossil fuel industry directly, that was the most intense uh, policy fight that we had. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you again for walking us through these, again, interwoven policies, as you mentioned earlier. I am dying to know more, first of all, about this methane removal. I think it's really important to note to people that natural gas is just simply not natural and that is a PR stunt pulled on the public. Just the word natural and natural gas is I mean, terribly misleading. I think it's probably useful for your audience to know in case they're not familiar that when you're talking about methane gas, and that's what so-called natural gas is, and in addition to other toxic chemicals that are coming out of your stove in particular, that little blue flame, you need to see that as the toxic emitter that it is. So in addition to it having significant negative climate impacts, we hear a lot about carbon and yes, carbon is of course a problem, but methane is significantly more impactful in the short term. So methane is also quite serious. And in addition to that, there is a very real public health impact from this toxic methane gas that most of us are igniting in our homes. And even when the stove is not on, it's a toxic environment. And those studies are new. Those are new studies that have just come out in the last few years where we're really starting to realize, wow, we need to get rid of these stoves in particular, ASAP. And it disproportionately impacts a lot of times women and children who are oftentimes the main cooks in their home or at home more and all of those sort of things. And you have little kids growing up with these toxic fumes. A lot of people don't have vents, you know, it's a problem from a health perspective in and of itself. And though it's also true that people are very tied to cooking over a flame. Like that's about as ancient as it gets, you know, you have the background that might know this. I'm certainly know this better than I do, but my sense is that it's quite literally almost in the DNA, like the epigenetic connection to cooking over an open flame is probably quite serious and quite embedded. And so, yes, it did take a lot of community education, especially as I said, when we're going up a lot of intentional disinformation on the part of the fossil fuel industry, it took a lot of education to help people understand that there are very new, very cutting edge, very beautiful and well-designed ways of engaging with electrifying the entire home. So whether it's your heat or your air, air conditioning or your stove. And so one of the things that we did is that we did a lot of community events around induction stoves, which is the type of stove that you transition to um, when you're electrifying. And we had little induction cooktops, like little plug-in cooktops at our local library where people could go and check them out literally and bring them home to their own home and start to get familiar with what it is to cook on an induction stove and start to demystify that. And I'm sure there's a learning curve, but what people mostly say is that they love it. We have some restaurants in town that are all induction. So they were also good partners in terms of like, we're professional chefs and we love it. And so it was definitely a learning process. Our policy is currently on all new buildings. So all new buildings here, all new residences are built 
um, 100% electric. No fossil fuel lines are going into those homes. And that that's a policy that's really spread, certainly across California and to some extent across the country. And what needs to happen now is that more cities need to grapple with the much bigger challenge of retrofitting the currently built environment. As of right now, I believe only Ithaca, New York is the only city so far who has created a policy to I think require retrofitting of all homes eventually to be all electric. So that's obviously a a big fiscal and just sort of logistical issue. And so they have a lot to be proud of. And I'm curious to see how that unfolds for them. Wow. I will say you mentioned earlier, perhaps it's in the DNA of people. People love to cook over flame. I feel like that's also a fascinating PR move on the natural gas industry's part because You hear all the time people mentioning or saying, oh, but I just love to cook on gas. Oh, it's just such a better experience. Things taste better. That's not true. We've all been led to believe these things that natural gas stoves are superior for whatever reason, or that they're more luxurious or higher end. And that's just simply not the case. So it's not just an issue of education on the electrification of the home, but it's also this cultural shift and getting people comfortable with the idea that their perception may not be 100% correct. 100%. You know, a lot of us have probably experienced those old electric stoves from the 70s with the little coil thing and whatever. And that's, I think, what a lot of people are imagining. And, you know, to be fair, I don't think those were that great, right? I don't think people really did appreciate those or like working with those. An outdated model, people, I think, need to understand just like everything else in our culture, this is essentially a technology uh, that is evolving all the time and getting better and better all the time and has a lot of side benefits, not the least of which is removing that public health threat and removing the threat. If you have uh, littles, especially, they can put their hand, I wouldn't encourage it, but they can put their hand right up on that stovetop. And it won't burn them because it's a relationship between the stove and the pan. It doesn't get hot in and of itself. So it also removes some of those safety risks that uh, that young families have. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. That's a really great uh, advocacy point that I don't hear a lot about, actually, the safety aspect of electric stoves. On the similar vein of electrification, I'd love to talk a little bit about electric vehicles. Okay. And something that's really exciting about local government, and especially in the state of California, is that vehicle electrification is this really wonderful relationship a lot of the time between a consumer and their local government, because it's not just on the consumer to purchase this car, but it's also on the local government to have available electric charging stations to make vehicle electrification a part of their government fleets. There is so much that can be done on both ends, again, from the consumer and the local government side, and I suppose also the business side of vehicle electrification and truly electrifying the American fleet. So I'd love to talk a little bit about EVs uh, during your time as mayor and what that looked like in your policy or in your actions. Yeah, and and that actually even is more resonant with my current role where I'm the senior public affairs director of a nonprofit called Let's Green California that is really working in coalition with a lot of other environmental groups in the state to really make California what it thinks it is, which is the leader on these issues, but often isn't quite there. But the city of San Luis Obispo, where I was the mayor, did have one of the most robust EV charging station programs in the state. 
And that is in part, I think, just due to our location, we're pretty much equidistant between the two big cities of Los Angeles and San Francisco. So we're a natural stopping point for folks that are traveling up and down the state. Um, and that, that infrastructure continues to grow. It's also true that infrastructure in the state of California and throughout the United States is still a weakness in this transition to electric vehicles. And that's absolutely true. And so Let's Green California and others, um, including the Biden administration, has a lot of funding coming out for that. The state of California is working hard on that. I'm guessing states throughout the country on getting that infrastructure running. It's a little bit of a, if you build it, they will buy the EVs a lot sooner, right? I think people feel rightly a little bit insecure in this moment of transition if they if there's a reliable infrastructure. So that's one of the things that we're working on as an organization. Um, your listeners probably know that transportation emissions are one of the biggest sources of greenhouse gas pollution. In a state like California that's famous or maybe infamous for being a very car-centric state, they're at least 40% of our state emissions. And just like the methane gas stoves that not only have climate impacts, but public health impacts, gas-powered vehicles also have significant pollution impacts. Tailpipe emissions make thousands of people sick every year, and about 9,000 people die early in, just in California alone due to toxic tailpipe emissions. And this brings up another really important aspect of all of this work around climate is the environmental justice piece of this conversation. Due to racist housing policies over the years, a lot of low-income communities, especially of color, are near freeways, are near highly impacted transportation corridors. So these public health impacts aren't equally shared. The burden of them are on people that are struggling the most in general. So there are issues of equity here. There's issues of justice and fairness in addition to the climate impacts. So we've been working on... Doing doing what we can to contribute to the ease and access and equity of transitioning away from toxic gas-powered vehicles to clean cars in California. I appreciate you pointing out the environmental justice aspect of this, and I think that's a wonderful tie-in to your earlier comments about the need for affordable housing in the climate crisis and how that is such a crucial piece of the human-centric puzzle when it comes to the energy transition. And when we talk about electrification and electric vehicles, we talked about these individual consumers who are in some sense, very dependent on infrastructure coming out from their local governments. But I'd also love to zoom out a little bit and talk about public transportation. I don't think very often as an individual about the electrification of public fleet, whether that is buses or government owned vehicles or whatever it may be, but that's also a really powerful portion of the transportation sector. And I'd love to talk a little bit, perhaps in your current role about how you're interacting with public transportation and electrification. Yes. Thank you so much for asking that question. I think a lot of us that are in the climate world that are in policy, and it's just like, it's a little more sexy to be like EVs and EV infrastructure. And I think also a lot of us realize that, man, wouldn't it also be great to skip the EV stage, because that's actually what it really does feel like to me for the most part, that individual transportation like that, broadly speaking, is not the way we should be doing this in general, because it's not like electric vehicles don't have their own environmental impacts, their own justice impacts in terms of a lot of battery 
mining, et cetera. Like when you really start to unravel all of these solutions, like there is no perfect solution. When you're creating policy, at least when, you know, what I think of, you're always going to have a problem. You're basically trading problems, which doesn't mean those problems are equal though. Like what problem do you want to have and how can we keep moving along the direction of creating the best solutions for the most people? But every policy has its problems, consequences, and then the unintended consequences, which are a lot of times unforeseen because they're unintended. So you're seeing that with like the battery conversation around electric vehicles and et cetera. I don't know if you're familiar with George Monbion. He's a writer for The Guardian on climate. And I believe he's the one that came up with this phrase. And I just can't get it out of my head. And I feel like this is what we should all be thinking of when we think about policy, broadly speaking. And he talks about the world that we need to create is about private sufficiency and public luxury. And this, I think, perfectly applies to the conversation around public transportation. Do I really need my own vehicle, actually? Or especially does like every member of my family need a separate vehicle? Or what is like privately sufficient for me to live my life? And some people absolutely do need a vehicle for their job or they've got kids and multiple jobs, you know, like there's no judgment around that. But I think it is time where we need to not just talk about, you know, which electric vehicle we want, but like, do we actually need that in the first place? Also, like you're kind of referencing to or alluding to, we also need to be advocating, fighting for funding, et cetera, public luxury, and especially when it comes to something like public transportation, what would that mean? You could, quite frankly, like all the technology and frankly, the money is there to create fleets of electric buses and other modes of public and maybe smaller, more micro transportation. So it can be more nimble too. Like we've been doing public buses forever, really, without stopping and saying, okay, we have all these new ways of doing things. Is this really the best way to, to get people from A to B? So you could see a lot of other modalities coming on, but let's just take the bus as an example. It could easily be electric. It could easily have great, reliable Wi-Fi. It could have routes and times that make sense for people's day and that, that are reliable. And I would say last, but honestly, not least, it could be beautiful. And I think that is also something that doesn't get discussed in policy because we kind of just assume like, we're just trying to keep people alive here. We can't talk about beauty, but anybody that knows anything about marketing or branding or whatever, like you, we need to make a bus like Buckminster Fuller was such a beautiful person and talking about, it's not about fighting the old, it's about creating something so beautiful something that people are going to want so much that they're naturally going to gravitate towards that. I don't use the bus. I mean, I walk everywhere. I'm in a walkable city myself, but one of the reasons is like in my town, it is not reliable. It also feels a little sketchy, like all of these things, but if it was beautiful, reliable, and all of those things, I think, you know, I think myself and so many others would use it. So yes, yes to public transportation. Like if you have fleets of electric buses, it's not only cleaner, et cetera, but when we have these weather events that impact the grid stability, then you have an entire fleet of batteries that can be utilized in those moments to sustain the grid. So they also, are, I think, are an under-discussed resource for grid stability. And so you're going to start to see a lot more conversation about bi-directional charging. So 
charging in and then charging back to the grid from the battery that's in your personal vehicle, but certainly a big battery in a, in a public bus would be really needed in an emergency, especially. Yeah, those are really, really good points in favor of the electrification of public transportation. And your comments around marketing public transportation as beautiful got me thinking about two things. I love to use the example of Tesla when we talk about electric vehicles and how we could market them to the masses, because Tesla never talks about how climate friendly their vehicles are. Climate is very, very low on their list of priorities. A Tesla is marketed as a beautiful electric vehicle. It's sleek. It's elite. There's something about it that just makes you want it because it is a luxury vehicle, right? There's nothing about the benefits of an electric vehicle that people are deeply concerned about when they're watching television commercials for a Tesla. I'm not sure if Tesla has television commercials. So maybe that's, don't quote me there, but you know what I mean? Like the marketing of a Tesla is really not- Yeah, they don't need them. Why? The marketing of a Tesla is not to the climate activists, right? So the flip side of that, or I suppose another commercial for an electric vehicle that I love and I love, love, love to talk about is the electric F-150. Yeah. Have you seen those commercials, how powerful they are? Yeah, where the guy's like, I'm in his truck and then it's racing and the grid, the lights go out, right? And he uses his truck to keep his lights on. Yeah, exactly. So I think that one's really powerful too, because the F-150 is the best-selling vehicle in America and it is marketed as this like ultra macho option for you to be able to take care of your family and fight a storm Mm -hmm. and just be able to do all of these like rugged manly things. And the electric part of it is like the last part of the commercial. That's what they're ultimately selling you, an electric vehicle, but that's not how they're marketing it. So if you're taking that same approach to something like public transportation, why not make it shiny and beautiful if you have the means to do so, if the resources allow, if you are in a situation where the electrification is allowing for other reasons for people to buy into a bus system or buy into some other public transportation, a really beautiful train that takes you somewhere locally, whatever it may be, like If we have all the options to make public transportation not only environmentally friendly, for lack of a better term, but also attractive to people to actually get to use it and encourage walkability and encourage us to think more deeply about our dependence on cars, like, why wouldn't we do that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons we don't do it is a much deeper cultural attitude and identity that we have in the West broadly, but in America in particular, the United States in particular. And that is this myth of the rugged individual, which that Ford F-150 commercial is absolutely playing on in a way that's inviting the masculine into this new way of being. So they're being very smart about it. And it's still really amplifying that idea. Like I'm a man and I'm out here on my own and I've got my truck and my house and I'm going to save my family. And I get it. Like, I think that commercial is amazing. And, you know, it's a much longer conversation about the masculine having been very resistant to any kind of environmental efforts whatsoever. Like when they pull men won't even recycle because they feel like it's fem- it's a f- feminized act. So we've got a long way to go in terms of um, what's often like I heard this term and I thought, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Petro masculinity, like masculinity and fossil fuel consumption. Again, like there's like that like burning 
and destruction, you know, like ripping the ground apart and all of those things, you know, we have a lot of way, long way to go to kind of evolve the culture away from that kind of identity and a long way to go still, I think, in terms of evolving the culture away from the myth, essentially, of the individual, the rugged individual, and instead really invite people to understand what's always been true, but we haven't really leaned into is the idea of building rugged community, because especially there's so much baked in, like no matter what we do now, we are guaranteed to be up against storms, droughts, migration issues, etc. And so I would love to see more conversation about building the rugged and as Martin Luther King said, the rugged and the beloved community. And so a bus you know, really in many ways is so much more than just a mode of transportation. It's like a moving metaphor in a way like that symbolizes that transition away from me in my car doing my thing for myself. And I'm actively stepping into this communal space and taking that risk and also benefiting from the, the, from the conversations that I might have, the people that I might meet and that sort of thing that communal spaces bring. So yeah, I think public transportation is critical on a variety of levels, including, of course, equity and access, and not to mention disability access, um, which often doesn't go understood or discussed in transportation conversations. To wrap up this conversation, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about SB 1230. Yeah, so Let's Green California had our first policy this year in the California legislature, and I'm happy to say that it passed. And what it was doing or what it does is it really takes all of the incentive programs that are out there for electric vehicle access. So if any of you have tried to access those incentives, you, like most people, have probably been relatively overwhelmed trying to understand all that's out there, what you qualify for, how much you're going to be able to use and all of that sort of thing. Um, And so that has been a complicating factor that has really been daunting for a lot of people. In addition to that, for lower income folks in particular, a lot of these incentives come as rebates after purchase, especially a tax deduction or a tax rebate. And that just doesn't work for low income families for a variety of reasons. They often may not have the cash on hand to purchase that vehicle if they don't have that incentive on hand at point of purchase. And a lot of times they are not making enough to have a high enough tax burden to even benefit from that after-tax incentive. And a lot of times, you know, I was a single parent. I, you know, for sure would drove my car till I, you know, the day I absolutely had to buy a new car. So I can't wait a, a few months to benefit from an incentive. So what we did was create a process that streamlines all of the incentives that are out there, makes it a lot easier to understand. And I think most importantly, we'll then make those clean car incentives available at the point of sale. So not weeks or months after the fact. Folks can have those in hand. We hope and we're, we're sure that that'll create more affordability and more accessibility and really paving the way, hopefully, for large-scale equitable participation in California's clean car revolution. Yeah, I think that bit at the point of sale, all of these incentives are available is a huge, huge deal that I hope people really understand the gravity of. Because you're right, for a lot of folks, you can't wait for these incentives at the end of the tax year. You don't have the space, the time, 
the finances a lot of the time to support these purchases. And yeah, and a lot of us will drive our cars into the ground until we can't drive them anymore. And then at that point, what is the incentive to just really go out of my way to purchase an EV if it's not extremely easy? So thank you so much for breaking that down so succinctly for us. Yeah, we are very much focused on, and you know, I would say uh, the climate movement in general has really evolved to really be rooted in environmental justice. You know, in every conversation I'm in, whether it's with my organization specifically, Let's Green California, or broader environmental movement conversations, it's really rooted in equity where it didn't used to be that way. So I'm grateful to see that evolution in the environmental movement. And so our intention with this bill and and our future work is to center equity as a guiding principle for the solutions to many aspects of the climate crisis. The climate crisis is so overwhelming, understandably so. And what I'm noticing is so interesting, having been in it for so long, it feels like in the last year alone, there's been a huge awakening to the reality of it. And that's great to see people waking up to it. That hasn't necessarily translated into people taking action. And I think it's because people are so overwhelmed, which is understandable. So I would encourage people to ask themselves, what do I love and what needs to happen? And find a space in there where you can weave climate into it. It doesn't have to be an activist or even working on climate policy. If you're an elementary school teacher, there is a way to work with your families to bring this into their consciousness and to create the next generation of resilient, loving kids that want to create not just a world where we're not extracting toxic forms of fuel, but a world where we're not extracting toxicness from each other, broadly speaking. So whatever it is that you feel called to do, don't change that, but find a way to weave in your part of the solutions to this, you know, unprecedented crisis. And it doesn't have to be about sacrifice. It really, it, to me, it's about expanding what's important. It's about quality expansion, maybe not quantity. Um, and so I, I just think, take a breath and find your path in this um, because climate crisis will be the defining issue of your life. There's nothing we can do about that, but what you can do is decide where you want to play a role in it. I hope you loved listening into that conversation with Heidi Harmon. Again, she is the senior public affairs director at Let's Green California and the former mayor of San Luis Obispo, California. Again, I am so, so glad that I got the opportunity to learn from her and speak with her. And I feel like I left this conversation really satisfied with the place of climate policy today and the direction that we are going in as a nation. If you have stuck around this long, please consider making sure that you are subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen to shows. That's Apple Podcasts, that's Spotify, that's iHeartRadio. And why don't you rate and review the show while you're there? I know that you love it. I really do appreciate you hanging out with me today. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this episode. Again, all of my links are down below if you ever want to get in touch. And I hope you have a really fabulous rest of your day. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.